Podcasting worldwide from Vancouver, Canada. Welcome back to the Personal Process Podcast. The show that takes you through the growth, hardship, self-discovery, lessons, and stories of individuals who achieved success in their own personal path. Trust the process. Welcome back to the Personal Process Podcast. Today, we have Mahalas, the creator of Language Transfer. And as we're going to find out, he has done some amazing things in his lifetime. And I think one topic we're going to be talking about today is fighting with yourself, fighting with your beliefs, and kind of finding your own truth through trial and error and deep reflection. So with that said, Mahalas, thank you so much for being here. And is there anything that I left out that you'd like to put in? Um, no, <laughs> well, I guess yep. maybe the, uh, maybe just to mention, you know, uh, for those that, that saw it, that we, we kind of already did an interview and, we, did. We, and did. We, decided, we decided to scrap it and, and run again. Uh, that was mostly because, you know, it was right at the end when I was finishing the book. So I guess I kind of, uh, may, maybe channeled too much my dark side. So I will give you a little bit more half and half today. <laughs> for sure and that is the thinking method correct the thinking method guidebook for new course writers yeah so i was just like wrapping that up the last time we spoke a lot of very intensive uh soul destroying editing and stuff so now i'm much more relaxed i feel like i can i can give a much more kind of uh globally true interview if that makes sense rather than just kind of focusing on a specific emotional environment which is what i was in uh, for, sure. for sure and uh for those of you who don't know I don't, i'm not sure if you have a copy on hand but like the book was thick and uh <laughs> <laughs> like it, yeah and i guess well mahalas is trying to find that i might as well uh pitch this and you know so mahalas just for those that don't know language transfer is essentially an audio version of learning a language from spanish to french to swahili there's just so many to pick and choose from. And, you know, the whole premise behind it is it, it all goes with, uh, oh, man. Yeah. So if you're on YouTube right now, Mahal's is showing the thick book. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing. You know, like the courses he's created are just in one medium auditory. But you can just uh, learn so much from like listening to one episode. The insights you get from it are just amazing and this book the thinking method I, I think one part of it is like how to think and how to learn these kind of languages and how you teach them and i think based on my experience going through the spanish course and still not finished yet but just insight after insight so i definitely recommend you check it out because you'll learn a lot um well, to, to clarify it because i think like I'm selling way too many copies. So <laughs> to, to clarify, the, the book is for new course writers because I'm trying to build a team. It's not like about, you know, how to learn a language, although it might be, you know, you could see it like how to learn a language to, to write the course because I've, I've learned many languages writing courses for them. But that's that's the main point of the book. So uh, I, and, and it's available for free as well as a free PDF for those that are, are curious and just want to check it out. Flip. Yeah. For sure. So the book is for course writers, but uh, languagetransfer.org is where you get the money for that amazing language transfer experience. 
So I think Mahalis, I think uh, we should just uh, gear up, go from gear one to two and talk about fighting with yourself. What does this mean to you? Do you mind just giving us a little bit of a background? And Yeah, I, just, I guess I thought that would be an interesting, you know, focus for us because I think so much of my language transfer journey was just like fighting it out with myself, you know, which is really hard to do. Uh, maybe even like this point of history, you know, where anything you want to look at, anything you want to do, there's a whole bunch of people that have already said everything about it and, and have established the truth, you know, and I really needed to to just kind of like, like, okay, I know what you're saying. I know what you say, but think things through from scratch in my own way. And, you know, that involved a lot of fighting with myself uh, in regards to, you know, ideas about, teaching and all of that but also in regards to like how to run a project um how to inter- how to interpret the world how to see languages even even the even the idea of you know like I, I like in the arabic course for example i need to talk about how languages and dialects they don't really exist there's just dialects really and we choose one and, and we get and we put a crown on it and we call it a language um you know but even even stuff like that you know, you, you you can see things from a different angle and you go, but mm, hold on, that's true. But then the knowledge that we've just kind of like picked up culturally, indirectly, you know, is that, okay, there's languages and they go around having like dialectal babies and, and that's just not, that's not the way it works. So that, that's just one example, you no, know, of, of a thousand different ways like that, that you just kind of uh, have to kind of find this confidence to have it out with yourself and know that if you're honest with yourself, and strict with yourself, then you can find some truth, if that makes sense. So that was like an ongoing journey throughout my activism career and also like building language transfer, which I think is like some of, one of the most important things. Also, because I find that fewer and fewer people do it because mm. fighting with yourself often means arriving to different conclusions than your clique group. And that's very isolating and ostracizing uh so you know the world's in a mess we're all in a mess we all have social opinions at the moment you know uh we all have opinions about what's politically correct and incorrect and i see very little fighting with oneself in that process so that's why i thought it would be a great focus for us today absolutely and i think it's it's a very amazing topic for a show to cover because you know it it's called the personal process right and without fighting with yourself to know what's true in your opinion without you know just getting all this input and not being able to sift through to see which speck of that information is your gold it's uh really doing a disservice to oneself and i guess one thing that i wanted to kind of bring it back to since you were mentioning the activism that led to some of this um fighting with yourself to figure out what's true do you mind just uh bringing us back through the first piece of activism that really got you thinking about this because i know you've done a lot in various countries oh but it was before activism i think was it yeah because i think i grew up around a lot a lot of extremely damaging uh hypocrisy Mm. You know, um, oh, it's always so early that this stuff has to come up, but it's just, <laughs> it's just, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I grew up in, in, 
so you know, I, I feel really stressed. So I really didn't like the way like I, I presented this in the last interview. But yeah. at the same time, like I said, for me, there's just no way of going around it. If I want to share the language transfer story and my story, I need to share these really personal things about my past, which are really difficult to to understand for oneself, let alone like share. You know. Uh, but I grew up in a in a in a very like a abusive abusive environment and petrifying environment, which made firstly all of my senses kind of get really heightened because if you know if you're in a if you're a child and you're in a sense of danger uh, then then you kind of you become very sensitive because you need to judge when somebody just might lose their mind uh, out of nothing and, and you you know and and you might be like fearing for your life so growing up in that i understood at some point that it was hereditary between commas you know mm. that this came to my dad from his granddad and even though for example like not from his granddad from my granddad um who i met once in my life um and that he didn't see his father in himself which was amazing because i'm pretty sure he was much worse <laughs> and uh, so i at a really young age i was like oh you're like this because your dad was like this. And then, oh, I'm going to have to be really careful. That was a really, really young. So I think that marked me hugely in my life, but to a fault, to a fault where I have punished mm. myself and judged myself for the most normal of feelings as well, you know? Um, so I kind of took it a bit to the extreme, but it led to, to all of this. And now I'm kind of at the other end of the tunnel, which is, you know, all of the support language transfers got both like in regards to like noise online and now financial support, which allows me to live and project with the project in a dignified way. I'm kind of like at the other end of the tunnel processing all of this, processing the crazy ways it made me work with language transfer, the pressure that receiving donations uh, had on me you know, a sense of self-value, all of this very messy situation. Like, I think any psychologist can be like, go through my video updates and just go, oh, poor sort, has he never got any help? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. it is really, it's, it's, it's been a way of life. And I, I think I was very much like that when I was a child. I really tried to assimilate more in society. I lost a lot of that, you know, and then I got it back again when I got, de-institutionalized when I left university left the NGOs I started to work at because you know I realized from the inside it was not what it was meant to be and then I kind of started getting back this confidence possibly you know that I had from a child which was like but why do I have to accept that that doesn't make any sense and I, I kind of did like a 360 <laughs> and kind of came back to like seven-year-old Michalis who yeah. was my group, actually. <laughs> yeah. So a couple interesting points. And, you know, again, to reiterate, um, I don't think I've, I actually mentioned this. So Language Transfer is a free program that Mihalis does completely based off of donations. And honestly, what you've achieved is just remarkable with this. So again, huge props for you, sir. But, um, you know, kind of just talking specifically about that initial childhood upbringing and your realization with this you know a lot of people have well not a lot of people but there's a decent chunk of individuals who have experienced trauma as a child various forms from various facets but 
for you to realize this at such a young age, I guess, is there any advice you would have for individuals to break free from just hearing negativity and just being able to fight with yourself to unlock the truth? It's so hard and I don't know how, how strange I am. You know, like I'm reading a lot about trauma lately, for example. Now, you know, I, I almost started to believe that, and I'm still not sure, like it might, like that I'm on the autism spectrum because my mother, who's a psychologist, told me so, but that is very convenient for her. So, you know, I, I, it's really hard to, you know, so I think about, you know, is that the case? Because I never have any memory of like loving my father, for example. I, I never have... You know, I feel like maybe, may, for example, you know, if I was, if I'm on the autism spectrum and that's a, that's a biological thing that has nothing to do with my upbringing, then maybe it was easier for me to disconnect from these like circles of contention. I'm not sure if that's a own word you only use in Spanish, like contention, like containment, you know, um, which is the hardest thing to do. Like, you know, that's why I was like shaking my head when you're asking me, it's like, how do you do that when your sense of self and your sense of love is that circle, you know, I, I, it's, I just finished a book called Betrayal Bonds, I think. And it, it just helped me understand so much why people stay in abusive relationships. It literally breaks the brain. Like it literally breaks the brain. It's incredible what happens to your brain. And so much of the stuff I go through and went through with language transfer and the abusive relationships I repeated with the usership which was mostly my fault. And like when I made the video and I was just like, I'm sick of this. You know, I made a video a few years ago, you know, like I can't, I can't pay the rent. I don't have health insurance. I'm working nine to 10, seven days a week. And you know, it, it, it was me participating in what wasn't essentially an abusive relationship until I just got to my limit where it made me sick and said, no, no more. And then the usership was like, no, actually we're not very abusive. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it really does a lot of fascinating things to the brain. Anybody that has anyone like that has gone through this in their life, I really, really, really advise reading about just like biologically what the brain does on trauma, you know, to help those people in their lives. Um, so I, 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 it's a really it's a really hard thing to give advice about because, you know, I'm not sure if I if I actually have an advantage, like if I'm on the autism spectrum, on the autism spectrum, I really had the advantage of being able to see myself very different from the tribe. And I also had like a sick feeling here since I was a child about belonging to any kind of tribe. Like it felt mm. dirty even, mm, not dirty, like embarrassing, uh, shameful to identify as anything, as a member of my family, as a Cypriot, as anything. Really? So that might, that might be my own head. That might be a part of the trauma that I lived. I, I'm not sure. But uh, what can I say? I think the best advice I can give is this kind of reading, which is very biological, uh, psychological stroke, biological, uh, where people can look at themselves objectively. You know, that allows you to look at yourself objectively and notice the habits in your relationships and go, oh, I'm an absolute textbook case. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing very special going on here. <laughs> it, it, it's very true, and you know, you're, you're mentioning the habits going into relationships that emulate the ones that we're like born in, and how it damages our brain. And I think all of this is linked. And you know, I, I think 
a lot of people don't even realize this, you know, like, and they just happen on autopilot. And then they're like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And I think through the process of really fighting with yourself through the process of reflection through the process of getting to know yourself better it, it's um it's really the only way that someone can defeat this because you know anyone can say that you have some issues and sometimes it's just random trolls on the internet i'm sure you've had your fair share of being the online presence that you are um but you know having this ability to go through and really decipher who you are and what's happened in your world is a critical element now, I think I actually, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I think I do have a really good piece of advice, actually, awesome. now that you've said that, which is judge yourself in the same way you're judging everybody else. You know, I'm sick of everybody that always knows when it's wrong when someone else does something and they speak to their friends and they expect all their friends to nod and smile and say, yeah, they're 100% right. And then when that they're that person in the other situation, then everything is churned, which is why I have really few friends, because for me, being a friend is saying like, uh, I think you're wrong. You know, like, uh, you, otherwise, what is the point, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of us with subjectivity is, a, is an issue. No, subjectivity is very important to survive, especially if you've been through like abuse and trauma. Your, your subjectivity really grows, your ego grows. You can even, uh, you know, most people that have gone through trauma have certain narcissistic traits, you know? Um, so all of that is a defense mechanism, that, that you, you need to believe you're everybody needs to believe they're a good person unless they're an absolute psychopath which is a real minority people need to believe they're a good person so they will make a construct around that you know and they will just repeat more in the world of what they live now i don't want to be like the people that i hate or hated you know i don't want to do that so that's why i fought with myself so much so i judge myself in the, with the same eyes that i judge somebody else which has done two things it's improved me as a person and also made me more tolerant only slightly, um, towards towards other people, you know? No, Hollis, wow. Like, I'm not sure if you guys saw me. I, I'm literally rocking on my chair, like nodding my head. That was just so glad, good. Glad we the interview then. <laughs> that was so good. You know, and <laughs> I, I want to kind of go back to what you said. I don't want to kind of be that person. I don't want to do that impact to other people, the negative impact. And just being so self-conscious of like the damage that it's done to you and realizing that, no, I don't want to be part of this cycle. I don't want to continue this. It's like, man, like, let me just give some claps, man. Like, it, it's, no, I, it's a, it's, it's a huge point though. And you know, it's like, it's in any facet. It's like, you know, you're even mentioning with your friends, like you got to tell them how it is. If there's something negative, you want to tell them, but it's because you want them to, because it's not only interacting with you, right? It's their whole network. And that yeah, network... Yeah, with their relationships. Like, like, I've got a good friend that only calls me when she's having problems with her husband, you know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, like, I totally get you. But, you know, yes, he's a man, but he has feelings, you know? And, and we go through it. And then she's like, oh, thank you. You know, okay, I know what I need to do now. You know, but most people think that being a friend is just going, you know, you're 100% right. What an asshole. You know, and no, that's not being a friend. That's very cheap, cheap friendship, you know. And if that's what you provide and, and if that's what uh, you, you're looking for, then you're not going to be the change you want to see in the world. Sorry. No matter how many memes you post, <laughs> you know. It, it's so true. It, it's so, so, so true. And it's such an important point that's 
that could be extrapolated in so many ways. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot more depth that I want to cover from this, and we'd be here all day if we went through that route. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to change gears a little bit from that awesome segue to the activism realm, because you mentioned that you went back to academia and even law school, and you went to law school, and we're talking off air about this, but you went to law school just to prove that you could do it. You did it. And, you know, from a position of law, it has a lot of, you know, prestige, a lot of comfort, obviously financial security. But you went off and said, nah, not for me. I'm out. And I'm smart enough to do this. Well, tell me about it. Yeah, that wasn't quite the story. It was more okay. like, I didn't know what I wanted to do at university. University was just mm. the way you moved out of home. So <laughs> that was that was what that was about. Right, And, right. you know, I come from just like a huge ignorance. Uh, like, uh, uh, you know, I was really, you know, I'm from the outskirts of London, which is, you know, uh, like I said last time, that the bastards of the empire, you know, we're all just like children of very rural people, uh, like, shoved together in this neighborhood like we we don't really get a lot of like cultural exposure to anything so right. the exposure that i had about what being a lawyer might mean was ali McBeal. Hmm. serious are, are you too young for that that's that I'm, serious i'm not sure if i'm too young but i'm i definitely do not know so do you mind explaining a little bit about that no it's just a really silly fun series of, it's like friends but lawyers basically. okay 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 and it is, if you if you see it or you watch a trailer, you just know how silly it is. What I'm saying, right, um, right, right. That, that you know, I didn't know anything about the world. So, uh, and uh, so I was getting good grades, which was unexpected when I left school and went to college for the two years of A levels in the UK. And so, law asked for high grades, and you know, um, I, I, I guess uh, I, I definitely had much more pronounced narcissism at that age of of just wanting to be the best at everything, you know, and, and that was part of like feeling worthy of something with the upbringing that I had. So it was like, you know, I'm going to get my law degree by the time I'm 21 and I'm going to be 23 when I'm finished the bar and blah, blah, blah. I didn't know what any of that meant. So I did a year of law and I passed. I think that was the detail that, you know, I, I did the exams to say, you know, I'm not leaving this because it's hard. Mm. I'm leaving this because it's boring as shit and I'm not learning anything about the world and you know i've always been i've always had this sensation that i'm born into a very strange world just didn't understand how people could take things for granted like cars and light bulbs <laughs> you know and uh, i wanted to learn about the world not what some old like white men write about it although i find it much more interesting now that i know about the world like law is much more interesting but not not to an 18 year old that you know hadn't seen anything. So then I changed to languages and I didn't know what I was going to do with it or where I was going to go. Um, it was just one of these things that just felt right. And it, and it, and it felt like magic. It was like, Oh, next year I'm magic. starting Hogwarts. Yeah. It was like, next year I'm starting Hogwarts. This is what it felt like going from law to languages. That's incredible. Malice. You know, like I, <laughs> I feel <laughs> like if I was in your position, I would just feel so scared. And you're saying it felt like magic. So I guess, how did this magic transform you? Like, what did you do with it? I think one of the biggest issues, so I had like quite crippling anxiety at university. I didn't know what anxiety was. You know, everything now is mental health, mental health, mental health, but it wasn't when, when I was that age, you know? I didn't yeah. even know what it was. I just had these horrific feelings like the ground was gonna swallow me up. 
And um, I guess I just needed always something to be very excited about to kind of like mull over those those feelings. The language has really helped. And then as soon as I started actually learning, then I started to construct a new person in a new language, which wasn't an invention. It was me, but just like a reconstruction where so much, so many of your habits about the way you think are tied in with language. You know, when you internally dialogue with yourself. <coughs> oh, really hope I didn't get COVID last night. Um, <laughs> um, you know, like the way you, you, the way you dialogue with yourself, the thoughts you have, etc. So, living in Spanish was like a rebirth. That was hugely therapeutic. And, you know, I just wanted to, like we had a year abroad as part of the degree and I was emigrating. Like my year abroad was about finding where I was going to live. Everyone was doing a year abroad. They were going to come back to UK to live and yeah. whatever. And my mind was just in a completely different place to anyone else. It was like, oh, I need to find where I'm going to live in this year, you know, like. And in no time at all, I was just like a native speaker in Spanish. Sorry, I really need to like cough. <coughs> right on. So in no time at all, I was like a native speaker in Spanish, you know. Uh, first in Cuba, and I, I had such a perfect Cuban accent that I would leave from Havana and people would like make comments to me in the street like, people from Havana are shit. Because <laughs> they would see me speak and think I was from Havana. And then, you know, I came to Argentina and my accent changed and I, I can't even imitate the Cuban accent now. So it's a really emotional really? thing. It's a totally emotional thing. I've been doing a lot of research about disassociative identity disorder or in other words, right, multiple right. personality disorder, which is a hugely common thing because when you have huge trauma and terror before your identity is integrated, it kind of breaks. It's a lot mm. to explain. But people that have personality switches where the personalities take over the body, that's when that goes really wrong. The, the division of identity where a part of your identity breaks off and remembers trauma that the rest of your identity won't remember is an extremely common reaction to trauma, especially when violence comes from the people that's supposed to care for you. Mm -hmm. So I suspect <laughs> I have quite an ability to, to kind of separate compartments of my mind and uh, make new people, which I never really understood until I've, I've been doing this research. And I'd love to talk to psychiatrists that understand uh, more about this, but I'm much more in my own research phase at the moment because I understand that single, uh, single five psychiatrists have five different opinions. Um, so, yeah, it basically, it just allowed me to, to kind of rebuild uh, versions of me, let's say, which would allow me to realize how broken the last right. versions were. I wasn't aware of any of this, you know, and, and, uh, you know, now that I'm older, my identity is not as fluid. So my accents are not as fluid. It's amazing. You know, so like before yeah. I was like a native speaker, people would Even. refuse to believe I wasn't from here often, you know, mm. uh, which still happens to me occasionally on some days, you know, but like, um, so anyway, it had that therapeutic benefit for me that I was just totally unaware of. And now I'm kind of like doing my research and being like, Oh, <laughs> for sure. For sure. And so I just want to ask you a couple of follow up questions on that. You know, you're mentioning that once you went to Cuba, you had like the perfect Cuban accent. And you kind of, I don't want to say, you know, threw away the anxiety, but I guess better understood it. Would that be fair to say? 
I wasn't very happy in Cuba. So, um, well, precisely because of that, because I, in my mind, I was, okay, so another thing that is super, super common is, is to fantasize uh, when you've gone through this trauma. You know, it was a fantasy. The year abroad sure. was a fantasy. Nothing was going to be like the fantasy that was in my head, mm. <laughs> especially not Cuba, because Cuba is, well, Havana is not a good place to be a foreigner, or it wasn't 15 years ago. Uh, right. For a lot of very complicated reasons about Cuba, it's it's kind of almost like an apartheid. It's really, really strange. Uh, but I'd have to talk about that for a really long time. Uh, so it was really, really disappointing. It was really difficult. It was nothing like I imagined. It was horrific. So it was a really, really, really difficult time in my life, which meant that when I escaped, I guess I shouldn't be saying this, but I, I guess I don't need my degree anymore. I, I lied to my university and said that I was in Cuba like the whole 13 months. Right. I was only there for five months and I faked my documents and I went to Argent came to Argentina. <laughs> uh, like I said, I probably don't need my degree anymore, so whatever. Uh, right, right. So there was no internet in Cuba, I could get away with that, right? So it was like, yeah, uh, I'm still in Cuba. And I came to Argentina and I was just so happy to be in a place that I could blend in and assimilate. And then that was when that was when so much uh, stuff happened to me. And I was this person that nobody could just believe how happy he was and how much energy he has. And I found that strange all the time. So tell me, like, where did this happiness come from? Was it... Just the ability, because you were mentioning earlier that when you kind of thought in Spanish. Sorry? To be someone else. To be someone else. Hmm. I never feel like it's someone else. I feel like it's me. I never feel like I'm pretending. Hmm. But you know, when you grow up like with so much neglect and so much violence and so much and psychological violence, you know, being told, you know, like you belong to me you're a piece of shit you came out of my balls i can kill you if i want to this was like my dad's rhetoric you know right uh like during violent episodes and stuff like that and really really it just does so much to your mind yeah like i really i hated the image of the victim so for me when we left it was like <clears throat> that didn't happen that doesn't exist and i was just the bounciest happiest kid and everyone was like, oh, my God, that guy's going to break. <laughs> That's what they were saying, like, in my family. Like, this guy's older, he's going to fall apart. Because I wasn't processing anything then, but mostly it was because I just, I refused to identify with victimhood or, or weakness or, or anything like that. Right. And um, I guess I needed uh, <clears throat> to, like, Spanish just gave me this this ability to, to all, everything about me that was that was positive and that was held back by this anxiety and that was trampled on and whatever, to just it just could come out by itself. But then, of course, life doesn't stop. So I've been speaking Spanish for fifteen years. I've had a lot of difficult experiences in life whilst I'm speaking Spanish, and that you know that doesn't go anywhere. All of that old trauma wakes up, and and now you know, and it all it all blends together. Let's say, I feel like I'm right. integrated at the moment now that i'm a lot calmer all of the different michalises or michaels or whatever that have existed right. uh, <laughs> but um oh i was just about to like wrap up the idea very yeah so, concisely so and i forgot <clears throat> so I'll, I'll fill in if you figure it out just cut me off but you know it, it really seems like when you really went and embraced you know spanish and into your own being it, it's kind of like you started a new game with a little bit of the remittance of the past. So if that negativity comes up, so that negativity sparks back up and you remember all this, 
But same with English. Now that you've learned the Spanish, a lot of the positivity came up and you're mentioning it becomes integrated. And it's just an interesting theory. I, I wonder if this is a way that through learning Spanish or another language, individuals can better understand themselves, you know, and I'm interested in your thoughts on that, Malice. One of my huge motivations. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. Bless you. <clears throat> <clears throat> getting some agua for the <clears throat> action the power speak <clears throat> there we go tap right. it on the chest good to go uh one of my huge motivations for language transfer was that you know that being able to to be somebody else to not to leave all of that victimhood behind. And I also felt very powerful. It's empowering, right? To learn a new language. So I felt hugely empowered. And suddenly I'm like this 21, 22 year old, you know, that I just felt like the, the strongest, brightest uh, little thing in the world, you know? And I needed, I needed that. That showed me, I guess it showed me an alternative. You know, it, it was part of leaving behind everything that I hadn't recognized. So I hadn't really recognized too consciously uh, the way I was, the difficulties that I had and all of that. Um, Spanish gave me a period of, of leaving some of that. Well, more or less, you know, I say that, but I don't think I ever really changed. Um, mm. I, think it's, I think it's fair just to say it's been a very long, messy process, to be honest, yeah. that, I'm just, that I'm just now kind of piecing together and going mm. like, whoa. Yeah, but but it seems to definitely have a role into this, even the state of reflection that you have now. I mean, this was an integral piece and just the fact that we're having this conversation about it, right? Um, yeah, and I, I want to kind of talk about, kind of bring it back to the fighting with yourself because this was a critical piece that we talked about here, but this was also around the time where you joined the NGOs and you kind of decided that it might not be the best fit, correct? Yeah. So this is, I think this is a really good example. So, you know, when I was, uh, you know, you're growing up and you're trying to find your group and what have you. And I kind of identified mine as all these people talking about NGOs, you know, these like socially concerned people or people that pretended to be socially concerned uh, at university and now probably all work in banks or whatever. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, so for me, it was like, what can I do that make me feel good about myself subconsciously? And, uh, you know, NGO was like the thing. So I, I come back to Argentina. like, So I have my year abroad. I go back to uh, England, like nine months, finished the degree, come straight back to Argentina before graduation. Didn't hang around for graduation or anything. It was like nine months in, in England. Did I say Inglaterra before? Did I say England? Sorry. I think England. Um, <laughs> so I, I go back to England uh, like nine months uh, and, th and then come back to Argentina and I start working at this NGO. Now, I'm a coordinator of a project in a very well-known NGO in Argentina and I'm 23. So this is a big ego boost. And then I'm a coordinator of two projects in this NGO. Apart from the founder of the NGO, I am like the one that has most work after her. And with all the enthusiasm in the world, I was doing it. 
And then I looked at the work and I was just like, hold on, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, they're just getting loads of money from like American Express and whoever to have the logos on the website. They make these brilliant leaflets about everything they're doing in the villages and whatever. And then you go there and there's just nothing like, you know, and they've, they've actually, they've made this NGO with all the best intentions in the world, but they've got trapped in this funding cycle of, and having to produce material to get the next bit from the funding cycle and not lay off staff and all of this. They're just completely detached from reality and, and they're wasting money, which could go to something else. So I started to see that. And of course, it was hugely inconvenient for me to see that because I was a coordinator of two projects and I felt like the biggest star in the world, you know. And like I said, like anyone that goes through trauma has a lot of like kind of narcissistic uh, characteristics. I was very much looking at myself from the eyes of those that have always judged me and wanting to be worthy, you know? Um, so sure. in that situation, I sincerely believe that most people just lie to themselves and get on with it and create the alternative reality and get on with it. But because I've given myself such a hard training not to do that, because I've seen how damaging it is in my parents, I just, I, I had to fight with myself and say, mm, no, this is not, this is not the one. So I quit. Wow. How did you feel when you quit? Um, good for about a day. And then I got swine flu and it nearly killed me. <laughs> Literally. I was Man. very, I was doing that job, a, a volunteer job with a, in a children's home, English classes at a school, private English classes and music study. I was absolutely just exhausted. And the moment I could just calm down, I got very sick, which often happens. No, when you're running on adrenaline. Definitely, especially when you just do so much amazing things and you can't rest because you got so much to put out there. And yeah, Matt, there's just so much interesting things about your life and what you've done, Mollis. I mean, like you mentioned, like a lot of people that were in those top positions, they just lied to themselves. They just lie to themselves, be like, oh, you know, we're doing this good at least, or we're doing that good at least. Even though I think you were kind of alluding to this, if not saying it directly, you know, they know deep down that it's not the right thing. It's not the um, way forward that's best with the money. But you still st took that back. And even though you had a great position and at that time you thought that was the right thing to do, you went away from it and you went to, I mean, like, how do you drop all that comfort? How do you drop all that security and just say, no? I mean, the comfort's here, isn't it? Like, so I'm not going to be comfortable, you know, knowing that being a sham, oh, it's horrible. What a horrible feeling when you know deep down that it's just more bullshit. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's horrible. So I don't know. For me, there's not much option there. It's very visceral for me. It's very, very visceral. And for I guess sure. I always thought most people were like that. But now I understand that most people have these mechanisms of, okay, so society needs us to be okay with contradictions to survive. If we were not mm -hmm. okay innately with contradictions, society would crumble because everything is a contradiction. Like we just, we just accept it, you know, in the same way that you accept... Um, well, I don't want to offend anybody, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but 
Um, so, right. What was I saying? The society is a contradiction. Yeah, you know. So it's it's a real conscious. So it's a conscious effort, really, isn't it? To to not want to become victim of this just easy ability to create a contradiction, to create a reality that you're comfortable with, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think my personal life story just made me acutely aware of that BS that so, so many people, the great majority of people that grow up, even just in repressive societies, if even if they haven't had like a lot of, uh, you know, like a personal abuse or whatever even if it's just a very repressive politically or religiously the society you know your mind becomes much more like focused on creating this construct that makes you feel comfortable about yourself you need to feel comfortable about yourself to participate in society society is your survival right so your mind is needing you to fit into that and i don't have that you know which is what makes me go oh god maybe i am on the autism spectrum i think i always did have it to be honest well i'm not sure sometimes i think mm. i did sometimes i think i didn't sometimes i think i lost it as part of my life experience sometimes i think oh no i was kind of always like this you know but i mean it's a, it's it's an it's an extremely extremely tricky thing we're talking about you know because it is you need to have the courage to be alone to be lonely you know to to think differently to people that you love you know to be it's, ostracized it's yeah to be ostracized and i mean yeah. that's part of our biological makeup which allows us to live in such complicated societies and our stuff has got so complicated that we are proper suffering from from it and seem to have kind of limited amount of time to realize it and make some kind of reset you know, before we all uh, consume ourselves according Definitely. to the popular rhetoric at the moment. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, I just want to bring it back to what you said in the beginning, you know, like when individuals are comfortable on the exterior at the cost of the interior, that's an unfair trade to yourself, you know? And I, I heard this quote, I don't remember from who, but I believe it was from a famous psychologist I'm not going to throw out any names because it's a complete guess. But essentially, when we lie to ourselves or when we essentially do this very thing where we give the exterior power at the cost of the interior, a lot of mental health problems arise, you know, and that's where the, some of the anxiety can come from for individuals in these positions. And, you know, I think in uh, a lot of Hollywood movies, like you see these people in positions of power in like the finance industry or industries that aren't, you know, the greatest givers and they're more takers they do drugs to maybe cope with this kind of thing and i think it's it's a critical point that you hit on the head with that one mahalas so yeah i mean i mean addictions are uh the essential response to trauma which is mm -hmm. another fascinating thing so i've always been like really conscious of this stuff and it doesn't mean that i'm not full of addictions you know like just even the way i was working and, and the tension and release that i was building up in those cycles became addictive to my brain and i had no idea until i just read this uh book all about it you know so mm. uh i think that 
to one degree or the other, the majority of people are traumatized because the way we organize life and society is unnatural and too stressful for the human being. Even having children, children were not meant to be brought up by their parents. Children were meant to be brought up by a group of parents in the village. You know, this is how we evolved. It is a horrifically stressful thing to be stuck with children all day. It's traumatic for the parents. It's traumatic for the children. You know, like we, it's just one example of the way we organize our society, which is just kind of, it doesn't fit with how we're built. And in response to that, you get all different, you know, kinds of addictions, which are then monetized, you know, be it social media, be it substances, be it food, you know, uh, the world runs on addictions uh, yep. it's, it's fascinating and trauma is the motor behind that so yeah people like me might have a special case but everybody is going through this to one degree or the other you know so it's easy to listen to somebody like me and go oh Poshard, what a hard life and it's just like yeah but still you know look at yourself because we're not we're not living in a fairy land and the world that we're living in would have damaged you in so many ways and why do we look at that to victimize ourselves and feel sorry for ourselves and you know and and to exoticize that or whatever no we realize that so that we do not continue it on i read a quote in this book again like you i don't know who said it but it was like childhood is a nightmare a social nightmare something like that that we are only recently waking up from what an amazing quote because childhood is done so terribly so terribly traumatically you know, and it's only now we're just waking up and going, oh, kids have feelings, <laughs> you know, that count. That's not discipline, you know, it's something else, you For know. Sure. So, uh, yeah, like I feel like what maybe I can offer people in myself is maybe a little bit of an extreme version, like of what we're all going through and all suffering with and which kind of uncovers the, the inherent problems we have in the way that we're organizing the world and society and everything. And, you know, it's a brilliant thing to talk about now because everything has just kind of been thrown in there and, like, people are willing to think about <laughs> things in, in ways that they've not been willing to think about before. Like, people have had to become much more open-minded than, than they ever were before. So, yeah, I think it's a great time to, to, think, about, to think about this kind of stuff. Absolutely. And yeah, like society right now is just not normal. I was interviewing Dr. John Rady on our show. He's a Harvard medical psychiatrist professor. And, you know, he was in his book. um, He was mentioning that essentially when individuals in the previous era were kind of like sleeping even right, everyone slept around each other. Some people were awake, some people were sleeping. But now it's like, the people that are night owls, quote unquote, they have to sleep at the same time to wake up at 8 a.m. because there isn't usually a 12 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift, you know, and it, it's 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 just unnatural. It, tri- tribes don't exist anymore. Everyone's just on their phones for social media and like relating that back to the point that you're mentioning earlier, you know, social media, I honestly think is very similar to a drug addiction. And it's the only difference is people don't recognize that. You know, they don't recognize, I'm not sure if you've used your screen time before, Malice, but like I have some periods where I'm stressed and I look, it's like six hours a week on Instagram or Facebook and sometimes even more. But, you know, it's like it's it's a socially accepted 
coping mechanism. And I'm not sure if this is kind of the reason that so many individuals, governments and companies are going towards this medium, because they know that maybe that society is not right for individuals right now. So they need some way to escape oh, from it. It's a long time. Um, I mean, I think generally addictions are just one of the best things you can monetize. No, <laughs> I mean, so, and that's another problem that I always come back to. Principal problem in society is what happens or what doesn't happen is what moves money. So if it moves money, it happens. If it doesn't make money move, it doesn't happen, you know? So if you think addictions make money move, whoa. You know, we are, everything is gearing for us to be more, more addictive uh, and more addicted, you know. And, uh, you know, the monetary system is something that I always describe it as an artificial decision making mechanism. There's not really anybody making decisions when we're talking about like what moves money around, you know, like it might make more sense to grow my strawberries here and sell them to my neighbors. But if I grow them in Fiji and ship them over, it'd probably be cheaper. But but the strawberries are going to be worse because of, you know, a, a chemical sprayed on them overseas and, and yeah. we're going to be using all this uh, gas and whatever. Like it doesn't make any sense when you look at the world in, in regards to resources, which is the only thing that matters because money doesn't exist. Right. Uh, but when you look at it economically, that's, I mean, money in itself is a dictatorship. If you move me around, that's right. Well done. If I'm staying still now, um, so yeah, we're, we're just lost, aren't we? We're just really essentially lost. I think that's one of the most important things to accept, to accept that your politicians are really lost. They're not the people that know. They're really just, they're not the people that know about anything. <laughs> you know, and uh, I mean, I've managed to let go a lot. Like, I mean, if we'd had this interview a few years ago, I'd be much more desperate saying this. And now I can just laugh, Yeah, you know? I'm starting to see this journey as kind of much more cosmic and I don't know, like God knows how and why are we here or whatever. And just do your best, you know? So I'm laughing about it, but of course it's a, it's a hugely, hugely serious problem. It's like we have, we are held captive by a system that we've created and we're all blaming each other, you know, like for not following the rules or for following the rules too much. So when I say for following the rules too much, you know, the principal rule is get money. That's positive. Yeah. But you, you can go overboard on that and do a lot of bad things to get money, you know, and, and whether that's wrong or not depends on a whole bunch of political and economic questions, uh, which are quite particular in every case and, and, and what have you. So I really see us as humans as a kind of species held captive, by the system that, that, that they've created. And we're all like looking at each other and it's like, no, it's just us. <laughs> really. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you really hit the, you really just secured the safe on that one. That's a saying I'm going to say from now on. I don't know if it sounds weird. Let me know. <laughs> secured the safe. You put the gold in there, you locked it up and we're keeping that one. But yeah, you know, it's it, it really is like that, you know, and just looking at the basic dynamics, you know, like no one really has family dinners even anymore, you know, everyone just does their own thing. No one communicates. And I guess the sacrifices we've given to live in this city world and all that kind of stuff, it's like, it's too much, you know? I mean, city world can work. You just have yeah. to have... Just we just got to be honest about it. 
There's, there's, no, I mean, there's just a, there's amazing ways of doing city life. You know, there's For no sure. reason to live in a city really uh, that isn't cultural at For this sure. stage. Right. So firstly, it would make sense for like cities just to be centers of art and culture and whatever. And if you're not into that, then go somewhere more rural. You know, we're all connected online. We're seeing that through COVID, you right. know, uh, cities can work in a communal way as well. You know, uh, offering, you know, people might just be happy in their family and find their community in the family or they might want to look elsewhere for it. All of that is possible within sure. the reality of, of a city. You know, sure. it's just the engine behind our system is not our well-being. So that's what I keep saying all the time to people when I'm talking about politics in the dog park, uh, um, that I don't agree with democracy, ooh, bombshell, but I agree 100% with democratic values. So at the moment mm. we have democracy, but we don't have democratic values. So choosing someone, choosing who's going to abuse you for the next four years, you know, it's not, there's nothing democratic about that. Democracy is like, okay, all of the, the, the resources of the state has to be geared at my well-being, my dignity, my integrity. Those are democratic values. Now, democratic values are constitutional, right? It's an unwritten or in some cases written constitution in which everything else is based around. So we shouldn't even be allowed to vote for somebody that offers us less democracy, which happens all the time. That should be an absolute impossibility. So we vote as a way to not, to not experience democracy in the majority of cases and democracy being understood as a set of democratic uh, values. Um, so yeah, wow. a messy situation, an interesting one. Definitely. And in that, you know, we're all traumatized, which is what I find fascinating. Within that, we're all traumatized and have these very traumatic relationships with uh, individuals in power or positions of power or concepts of power, you know. And it, seeing the way people interact with the pandemic and the little scrutiny they put behind, what well, is the extremes? There's these people that just will believe anything because they saw a video about it, you know, and then there's people that, uh, I mean, in regards to like conspiracy theories and whatever. For sure. And then there's people that will just accept everything the government says without any scrutiny, scrutiny, even though it just like it makes no sense. It makes no sense statistically. It makes, you know, and I think this is part of a process. And, and there are many processes in the world that do this either deliberately or by accident that create governable mentalities. And, and this is, you know, and the pandemic is incredible for creating uh, governable mentalities. It's quite scary, you know. Uh, the, the the footprint that's going to be left uh, behind from this. Oh yeah. How do, you, how do you see any truth behind that? Just I don't know. Fighting with yourself, fighting with what's comfortable for you to believe, fighting with what you want to believe. For sure. I don't like to get any closer to truth because of that, especially in a situation like this. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. And you know that's. Speaking of addictions, <laughs> um, for sure, Miles. And you know, it's uh, it's you. Just, I, I don't even know if I can comment on that. You you just explained that so well. But I I want to kind of continue this fighting with yourself journey. You know, I want to take us to Cyprus, and I'm not sure on the timeline if this was before Argentina, if this was after Argentina. But you've oh. done a lot after. Okay, awesome. So we're on the right track then. And, uh, you know, you've done a lot of activism in that region and especially in the buffer zone. And I've done a little bit of research after talking with you a little bit about this. But 
it's really incredible what happened. And feel free to correct me since you were on the front lines over there. But essentially, Cyprus is an island that is, has a Turkish group and a Greek group. And the UN essentially got involved a lot of, I don't know if it, it was war, yeah. And uh, it just really ruined the two groups of people. Because I think inherently, everyone kind of still wanted to be with each other. But the UN was kind of stopping that from happening. Oh, it's, it's very complicated, the situation in Cyprus. I mean, Cyprus got its independence in 1960 only. Right. Before that, it was a colony forever. France, right. England, Egypt, Turkey, whatever, right? Or Ottoman Empire, no? Right. Um, and Cyprus has always been like a mix of communities. You have Greek-speaking Cypriots, although that's a Greek dialect, uh, Cypriot dialect, which is very different. And Turkish-speaking Cypriots, again, that's a Cypriot dialect. Armenian Cypriots, Maronite Cypriots, which came from what is Lebanon like a thousand years ago. So we were always those communities, or those mix of communities. Now in 1960, and the English wrote the constitution of Cyprus, they obliged all of the secondary minorities to choose whether they were Greek or Turkish. They had mm. to choose if they were going to be Greek or Turkish. This created a situation of bicommunality with a little bit of meddling, as we know, you know, divide and conquer. Uh, managed to have these communities fight against each other, which means that independent Cyprus could still be managed to a certain degree by foreign powers and be used as, as a launch pad in the Middle East. So I think it's like 3% of Cyprus's sovereign English, a British military base still. Uh, there's wow. another 3%, which is the, the buffer zone that divides the island. There's espionage bases, uh, US espionage bases in the mountains. You know, so it was kind of constructed, but the, 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 the conflict and the violence did happen, of course, you know, but it was, it, I mean, it's a very, very complicated story and there's all different kind of opinions on it. But yeah, I went there and did uh, this activism with Greek and Turkish. And again, you know, I had to fight with myself because I thought I was being open-minded because of course, you know, like you grow up with this victimization that these like barbarian Turks came and like, raped your grandparents and la 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 but you you hear the same stories from both sides Absolutely. and you know so i thought i was being open-minded saying well the ones that were born here it's not their fault right so mm. it's that's a it's a pretty limited position you know and then so i had to fight with myself in cyprus as well to understand real equality you know not feeling like you're the big guy because mm. you let the others be in your Greek island, which is what you've been taught. You know, right. that is the problem, actually. For you sure. Know? So my mind is full of crap because I grew up where everyone else grew up. You know, so it's a constant journey in life of going, oh, where'd that idea come from? <laughs> you know? So yeah, Cyprus. Cyprus was a big deal for that. And also in regards to ethnically speaking, because I mean, I think this is another amazing point about fighting with yourself. What I've just told you about the history of Cyprus is the truth, but it's not the mainstream history. So if you speak like this, it's like you're, you're almost like some kind of strange exoticist or something like. So me and Cyprus, I'm like, look, we're Middle Easterns. Our language is a mix of all of these languages on the island. Like this is our identity. We are a mix of everything we have here. We are not Greeks, you know. And that's a crazy posture nowadays in Cyprus, although more and more uh, people are coming out and saying, you know, no, this is how we feel. This is how I identify. These are the stories I heard from my grandparents. And Occupy Buffer Zone was a huge movement for that to start happening. And there's still activities in Cyprus from people that met each other in Occupy Buffer Zone that are still doing, 
you know, like protests and stuff like that. Um, sure. And so, Mahal, yeah, like, j just before you go on, do you mind just explaining a little bit about what Occupy Buffer Zone is for those that don't know? So we, we just, the buffer zone is like where you can cross over to the other side. That's been open for around 15 years or so, um, or maybe longer now. We went then and from the north side and the south side to show that we can live together, that we can cook together, that we can laugh together, you know, that we can, that we can resist together mm -hmm. and say that we want to live together, you know? So we occupied the buffer zone. We were there for some months and we caused a big problem, like international media were all over it. Nothing like that had happened in Cyprus. You know, we had like an hour interview maybe on Al Jazeera. It was absolutely crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, even like being from the diaspora, being born in London, like the majority of Cypriots, and, um, you know, going there after having this other identity in Argentina, you know, in, in Cyprus and the Argentine, and being able to find my own spin on things and say, no, but this is the history. And it's obvious if you look, if you look at the language, if you talk to the, the old people, you know, and this is my identity. Again, you know, like I had, to, I had to fight with myself to allow myself to see that truth, which is so extravagant compared to the official story, you know which is crazy. The official story is just, you know, that, that we are like stranded Greeks from mm. like thousands of years ago, like, you know, pure blood Hellenics. And, you know, and then when people from Cyprus go to study in Greece and they realize the culture is nothing like Cyprus, they come back and they say, they lost the way, we're the original Greeks. Rather right. than going, oh, maybe I need a different identity. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's incredibly, it's incredibly interesting. And something that I always remember is just like, you know, people having a go at me, telling me like, your blood is Greek. you got to stop all of this stupid Turk hugging, you know? And I'd be like, mm. you've literally used four Turkish words to tell me that. My blood is like our language, you know? And I had a DNA test to prove it as well. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think this kind of shows us, you know, you need to fight with yourself. This is, if this isn't a clear example of why you need to fight with yourself, I mean, you've just clearly shown that people don't even understand this for themselves. You know, there's just propaganda left, right and center, and everyone wants to believe that they're the best. You know, I think that's kind of nationalism for any country, and any people. They want to think that they're the best, whether it's Greek, whether it's Turkish, and they want to feel like they're right because that makes them feel good. But without fighting with yourself to know what's really the case. I mean, you just explained the history of Cyprus to me. I didn't know that. And, you know, I think without this understanding, people really can't go forward. And then one one minor point just to add on, just to add a little bit of um, understanding for those that don't know. Occupy Buffer Zone was occupied by UN guards. And Mahalas actually has a lot of videos documenting his journey and his activism in this region. And I was watching some of them and, you know, there's guards, there's malls, it's just, huh? sorry? They're funny, huh? They, they are funny, but like, honestly, uh, you're pretty, you're pretty courageous there, Malas. Like, you know, like there'd be guards like pushing you away and Malas would just like try to give him like a big old hug. It's like, we love you. And the interesting point, one, one particular video, I don't remember which one, cause I watched it a while back, but Malas was speaking and 
the guards had so much attention to him. And it's not like he was speaking on like, you guys are the worst, but he was just speaking like, we're a community. What are you guys doing here? You're, you're like, you're just breaking us some apart. Of, some of those guards came and thanked me. And they said to me, to me from the inside, we realize how much BS this is. And we're all following you. But then the chief of staff of the UN came and tried to like manipulate me psychologically and threaten really? me. Really? Well, he was very bad at it, bless him. You know, he was like, <laughs> oh, I know what you are. Yeah, he was really cocky, you know, like, I know what you are. You're just a spoiled Cypriot, which has, you know, been given everything, which is pretty much the case in Cyprus nowadays. Mm. Um, and just, just completely got everything wrong about me and my motivations and why I was doing it, you know, and... And I just remember leaning in at one point and going, all right, you're going to have to help me here. I really can't work out if you think I'm really stupid or if you're really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> just like the chief of staff in the UN of Cyprus. And I went home and I just wrote this out, what happened. And then it got picked up by all these newspapers and, and what have you. But yeah, like I didn't have any fear, but I think that's probably got to do with an exaggerated adrenaline reaction. <laughs> that goes back to what I was discussing before. And, uh, you know, I've kind of taught myself to be a bit more cautious. But, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I like... A lot of memories about those times, you know, because it's... You live... You move around, you live so much, and they just feel like other lives. And then it comes up in conversations. It's like, poof. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> All that happened, yeah. All that happened. Yeah, and, y you know, it's... Like, how did you go... Like, just the things that you've done, man, like, I just don't understand, like, how you had that courage, how you had that confidence, how you had that vigor. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> going for a hug for a UN guard when they're literally trying to push you away. And these guards had, like, weapons. These intuition as well. You know, there was one of them that if I'd hug you, would have snapped my neck, you know. But right. you, can, you can also tell, like, when they're just like, this is so ridiculous that we're coming here to bother you. You know, so this guy's yeah. like the one we're talking about. It was not actually the occupation; it was the two-year anniversary after it ended that we made the little event there where we pretended right. to be politicians and yeah. and make negotiations. Now, I didn't really have anything to do with that uh, event. I was in Cyprus, I think, briefly at that time, and I went. And mm -hmm. things started to fall apart, fall apart because the UN was like kind of really aggressive, really quickly. And then I, I, you know, it just pops up this like save the day character. Uh, I don't know who he is. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I kind of like uh, took the reins of, of the situation, which people thanked me for, because it did make a really good, uh, it did take, you know, like that kind of monologue that I gave outside the UN, which I didn't know was being filmed. Otherwise it, it wouldn't have been good. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that, that kind of went viral. And, uh, you know, these things wake up inside of people things that they haven't let come out because they haven't fought with themselves. So a lot of people was like, you know what? I think like you. And they were angry about it. Why were they angry? Because they were repressing it themselves for so long. And they needed to see me, you know, and 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 then be like, yes, I feel like that. It's just fucking stupid, you know. And, and also the thing about identity, you know, and people would write to me going like, I've known this always that we are symbiotic, that we don't exist without one another, you know? 
So yeah, that was um, that was intense. Off air, we're talking about how in the beginning of the Occupy buffer zone, you're leaning a little bit more left, but then as time progressed, potentially that changed. Is that right? I don't identify with the left. That's what changed. The mm. left is a organization as a culture as a culture more than anything right um i don't identify because there's not this fighting with yourself going on as far as i can see so yeah like you know we're very good at pointing out what's wrong in the world but we're not very good at not doing that in an abusive way you know or using the position of victim to victimize Mm. which is something that is happening uh loads and loads and loads in in loads of spheres all stuff that we need to work out but at the same time i appreciate that this is part of the process and one of the first processes is anger Mm. you know one of of the first processes this was not right you know and and sometimes you go through these cycles like because you know i think one of the last processes in the cycles is realizing that your abusers were abused and like finding a, a a peace but you might do that whole lap 20 times in your life in regards to like all different things you know we are all agent and we are all victim and we cannot look at the victimization without looking at the agency you know that we can't look at the like the the being victimized without looking at the agency that we have to victimize others and the way that that would have come through in life and most importantly not identifying it as a social phenomena you know that brings this out of us rather than bringing better attributes out of us that we clearly also have you know wow so i think we were in comparing to like a a couple of years ago you know like i feel like we're probably light years ahead as a as a culture in doing that it's it's messy and ugly at the moment you know it's controlled too much uh, by social media and, and what have you, you know, there are huge problems, but interesting stuff is happening. Whether it's fast enough, time will tell. For sure. Yeah. Crazy times, crazy times. But no, I, I definitely hear you. And feeling that full circle effect on how everything is experienced is critical. Yeah, you just have such an under deep understanding on this that I think a lot of people really need to hear. And it's like, you know, like a lot of people may only know you from language transfer after learning a language, but like to hear the amount of realization, the amount of experiences and how everything came together is is just a different story. You know, you're mentioning earlier that a couple individuals came up to you is like, yeah, I thought that way, too. And I they repressed it. And, you know, it's like we're talking earlier, even that that everything's a network effect, you know, like if you decided to stay in law school and go that way, none of this would have happened. And who knows what impact you had on those individuals and what impact they have on others. And all of this spreads forward. And, you know, if anything, this is another reason why you need to fight with yourself, find your truth and express it, you know, courageously, because if everyone did, and sorry and be comfortable to change it that's the important thing when you're fighting with yourself it's not other people fighting with you that you have to defend yourself against you can go yeah i said that a year ago now i think something different because i learned something else problem (laughs) you know people break down it's incredible and that goes to show how much it has to do with identity and this is what annoys me and which i've come to have little tolerance for although i'm working on it 
is that when somebody's political opinions are much more about their identity than really caring about society, which in the great majority of cases it is, especially when we all have some level of trauma that has damaged our identity and we want to feel good about ourselves. But when you're in that paradigm, you're doing something selfish, counterproductive and not altruist as you are proposing it is, you know? So, uh, I think that's I think that's an, a, a really important point, you know, is what you think and your positions and etc. on things. Is it about your identity and how you see yourself, or is it a logic? Is it is it is it a product of logical thought and experience and and thought experiments and and whatever, you know? And when people say, "Oh, you you always think you're right," you know, and you change your mind, and it's, of of course I do. Like if if I didn't, I'd change my mind, and then I would think I was right again, wouldn't I? Um, you, you know, just because I think I'm right about something, uh, it doesn't mean that I can't change my mind. Although sure. when we're discussing and sharing, I, you know, I, I, I highlight much more with people that like, you know, I think rather than I, I believe, you know, like I think, but wow. God knows, you know, and I think that kind of gives a better platform to have discussions. Like we're not fighting about what's right, you know, like, yeah, you might be right. Like anything could be, we might be living in the, in an aquarium as a paperweight for some like rich alien. Like we don't know anything about reality. You know, like anything could be the case, you know? So my thinking is it might be this, it might be that. What's your thinking? Oh, but God knows. And have more of that attitude with each other. No, rather than this is my story. My story has got to survive. For my story to survive, your story has got to die because that's just about your identity and nobody cares about your identity as much as you do. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, these are that, all fights that... I've had with myself, you know, and just because I have so much had and have so much channeling through myself that I don't like, which of course, how is it not going to be the case with the way my mind was formed and formed. you know in the way that I grew up partly like in my in my family which has a long line of trauma and and partly in this um capitalist or, or whatever word you want to use to describe it uh because it, it's not you know capitalism or anything really in itself no it's a whole it's a whole cultural system mm. anyway yeah, no, huge points. I think, no, that was, you, I think that was half a sentence again. I'm sorry. I have too many ideas happening at once. No. You know, we've done this before, you know. No, <laughs> you no. know. I, I love this, man. I, I love this. And you just bring up a lot of good points. I mean, we're talking about various aspects of life. You know, I think versus I believe, you know, it's like this is a temporary thought based on every information that I've accumulated and the experiences I've gone through. And having these discussions with people allows you guys to rebuttal and find a clearer truth it allows you to fight with yourself while conversing with others and i mean it's so vital and a lot of people have you know like they're like i think you were mentioning this before but you're like oh you know i'm right my opinion has to survive i have to give this opinion if you disagree with me it's the worst thing but then that locks them into that paradigm it doesn't give them an opportunity to break free out of their own jail to see what the other side looks like and i think well, that's an god sorry sorry i, I got it's a it's a one of the things that helps me you know kind of follow my ideas or give me new ideas about stuff is the way that language often just affirms ideas you might have spanish creer mm. is to believe crear is to create so mm. very interesting how huh? 
when you believe something, you will filter reality in order to affirm your belief. Whoo, that's scary. But it's really the case. And again, fighting with myself, I've really realized this. So I try not to believe and I try to be like, might be that, might be that, might be that, might be that. So Game of Thrones helped. <laughs> so I, I was living in Asturias and, and totally and working on language transfer. And like my main pleasure, uh, you know, and or kind of an addiction cycle of working late and then relief was like watching Game of Thrones in the evening. And, you know, waiting between the seasons and whatever, I had a friend in the next village who we would meet up with on Sundays and, and eat. He's the one that sends out the language transfer packs at the moment, by the way. And right on. we would just go through all of our Game of Thrones theories. And because it was such a crazy thing where anything could happen, you know, uh, our, our theories were just endless. And I say it seriously, like as a, as a, as a thought exercise and to go, you know, like you don't know where it's going to go because there is going to be a truth. There's going to be episodes that come out and you're keeping all these compartments open of what might happen to see also then what might happen afterwards. Well, your interpretation of reality is the same thing. You know, what is, wow. what might be to understand what is. You know, it's a hard thing to do and it's damaging to the identity so this is the, the conflict that we have because your identity or these beliefs. So the way I think I've got around that is I've identified more and more with what I call, and I really need a better term, the third eye, right? It sounds way mm. too hippie, but it's not where I'm coming from. So for me, like the third eye is the conscious eye that's looking at you like a little animal and deciding what parts of that animal it wants to let filter through and which parts it doesn't, you know? So I might see myself about to react in a way that I don't want to react. I know where it comes from. And the third eye says... No, do it this way. So I think the more you identify with the third eye, with that rationality or consciousness or whatever, the less important the belief system uh, is in your sense of self. And then you can start to control it more than it controls you. And we can hopefully, as a society, become agents of our culture rather than just victims of it, which is evidently what we need to do to survive. <laughs> you know, like we're not, I mean, it, it seems very natural for me, our process on this planet, you know, like we found fossil fuels, we made a whole bunch of stuff, we got a whole bunch of consciousness. That's not going to go on forever, you know. Uh, we've, we've, we, we are a product of a culture. A culture is a product of us in a, up in an unconscious way, because like I said, money takes all the, the decisions, you know, and, and that cannot, that's only going to last for so long. We need to get to the next stage, you know, which is where we create the culture that will create us. You know, we are creating ourselves in that respect. I'm not the first person to say it. There's a lot of um, activists, uh, I believe, like uh, on that wavelength. I think a lot of anarchist thought has something to do with this. But, you know, I, I really don't identify with any group. And a lot of the times I talk like this and people tell me, oh, you need to read this. You need to read that. And I, I didn't, you know, it's just my, my experience of the world and what I think. Uh, so again, you know, like if you're an anarchist, if you're this or that, no one is going to understand anything when you say I'm an anarchist, you know, yeah. just think, share people what you think. You don't need to identify as an anarchist to have a group. It's only going to make you dumber. It's only going to make you dumber. Reading anarchist philosophy or capitalist philosophy or socialist philosophy, you know, it's not going to make you dumber, but then identifying as a Marxist or this or whatever, it's just going to narrow, it's going to narrow your view 
Um, I think we just have very practical issues to consider without the identity question, like how do we want to be, how do we want to interact with each other, how do we create a society that promotes those values, really simple, and don't ask the politicians to do it though. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, just on the last point of identifying with one specific group, whether it's anarchists, whether it's the left, whether it's the right, whether X, Y, Z, you know, you, you really got to ask yourself, like, are you really putting your whole views on life and every single domain on one particular group? Because, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with Subway, the restaurant franchise. You know, you could go and order a specified sub, but... There's a lot of individuals like myself who I get specific things. I put specific things in my sandwich and similar politically. I think some things this way. I think some things this way. And my values aren't in one particular group. And I think if I limited myself by saying, I don't know, uh, I'm an anarchist or something, I'd be doing myself a disservice. I'm not showing my true self, you know, and I, I mean, anarchists, anarchists were slipping out a lot because it was the problem I had in Cyprus. So, you know, there were people that were coming to the occupation that were really damaging, you know, that they were like getting very drunk and violent and inappropriate with underage girls and all kinds of things that this person needs to not be here. And the anarchists were like, no, we're anarchists and we're inclusive. And I'm like, well, if you can't think, you know, that the, this person's presence is reducing the inclusivity of the whole place because you're an anarchist and you don't really understand that doctrine that you've adopted, that's not helping you. You know, but the tattoo that you've got there is going to make it really hard for you to let go of that. You know, so yeah. this is the problem uh, with identity. So, yeah, I think this idea is. So, I think I can say, you know, like I, I, I've realized in this interview, you know, the connection between fighting with yourself and identity, which I hadn't really made that connection consciously. I mean, I, I thought about the two things a lot separately, but, you know, to know how important the the role of uh, identity is when it comes to, to fighting with yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, just, just on that topic, there's a psychological theory called the self-determination theory. And essentially, humans need three things in their life, competence in some domain, relatedness, and also autonomy. So what ends up happening when you identify with a group, you feel like you're competent because you feel like that's the right domain relatedness you have a whole group of people in that occupy buffer zone that say they're anarchists and they're right and all of this and they think they're doing this out of their own free will so it's such a powerful force that people can't get out of this you know and to break off from the shell you lose relatedness and you question your competence because there's nothing else to you know there's no one else to validate that your ideas in life are right and well, although you, know you have a Sorry, sorry. It also depends on the personal story of each individual, you know. For one person, competence is going to be much more important if they have, like, I don't know, more narcissistic, narcissistic traits, sure. either because they were spoiled or because they were sure. neglected or whatever, you know. So to be the one that knows everything about anarchism, you know, that, that's their role. For the, the other person that was never, you know, that might have been more neglected or, or, or how it, or, you know, they might have gone through the same situation exactly and just it had a different effect on them. The most important thing for them might be uh, the association, you know, the sense of group and, and family. And, and, you know, and a lot of political movements take advantage of that, you know, like the groups for lost souls um, that, mm -hmm. that, that, that need uh, an identity, you know. So mm -hmm. 
all, yeah. all these movements, all these, you know, I'm not a religious person either, you know, and I think that religions have so much wisdom to share. All of these political movements have so much wisdom to share, but we need to move on from this like animalistic, I am, you know, like, Jesus, it's so boring, you know, and I, I had so much of it. And when I identified it in myself and went through all of these different identities, it was just like, oh my God, how boring actually, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Because everyone's their own unique flavor, you know, and going back to the Subway sandwich, make your own sandwich, man, put on your own sauces, you want pepper and salt, throw that in. If not, don't follow the herd, you know, like, pick your own sub and, you know, go on and make that powerful impact on someone's belly or life, you know, I mean, like, if we're going with that example, but you know, one quick point that I wanted to uh, make, and hopefully I don't forget what I wanted to make is you were mentioning earlier that, you know, through this interview, you've kind of connected the identity to the fighting with yourself. And this is just an example. You know, this is what we've been talking about, you know, fighting with yourself through conversation, bringing up our thoughts, our opinions, and through conversing, I have some opinions, you have some opinions, then different things connect, you know, and maybe this connection is going to be related to something else that you discuss with someone else, you know, and the cycle continues onward, we grow, we develop. And through sharing this, we have that network effect. And this is such a critical point that I want every single listener to hear. Go express yourself truly. It changes the world. And I just wanted to add, like, the truth does not need owners or, or, or defenders, mm. you know? So, again, the identity about owning truth and all of that. For sure. The more we understand more about truth when we consider all of the possibilities when we don't have the resources to know. And again, language uh, helps us understand this idea, which would be alithka in, in Cypriot. I love this word. So that means truth. And it is something like unobliteratable, unoblivious. Wow. The truth is impossible to put into oblivion because everything wow. that we are is a result of it. Wow. You know, so I think our relationship with truth, which is so egotistical because it's, you know, it's based on identity, competence, things you mentioned, you know, I think we need to kind of understand that we, that we are it anyway, <laughs> whether we're aware of it or not, you know, and, and just be a little bit more, gentler on our awareness you know like we don't have to decide there's so much stuff we don't have to decide it's so much more valuable to be open-minded to all of the possibilities than to know what is the truth definitely and yeah 100 percent agree and uh i think through these kind of discussions we can get closer and closer by pickaxing our way through effort and getting to it we won't know it for certain but i think through this kind of conversation and discussion, we can all get a little bit closer to what is true. And that's going to evolve constantly. And we can change our minds if we hear your new information, like we talked about before. So, Mahalis, I'm interested in language transfer. <laughs> we, we've gone on for an hour oh, and wow. a half, and we haven't <laughs> even talked about language transfer, my friend. All of, all of, this, is, all of this is language transfer. All of this is language transfer, but let's let's uh, make that amazing baby rise up from all this experience. 
how did this play a role into language transfer into you know the payment paradigm where it's only based on donations and everything is free that's that's another two hours you know oh man should we uh should we give a quick summary or you play it how you like i'm our longest episode here has been four hours so we could make it work if you want wow um i think in okay so I can ignore the, the negative aspects because it's sure. interesting to talk about, sure. right? In terms of like the way I worked and uh, and the kind of negative relationship I had without realizing it in the way I built the project project up. Like I think it could have been actually much easier, but at the end of the day, I am the person that I am and the person that I am needed to go through that in the same way, you know. So, I mean, I could talk about that side of stuff, which is much more... Focus well. It's more focused on the stuff that we've been talking about already. Yeah. So maybe it's good to 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 focus more on the course content. I don't know. You you direct me. Sure. Let's talk about. I mean, what was the driver? Because you know you've had a lot of life experiences. You've had a lot of challenges. You've had a lot of interesting experience through relocating and living in a different language and discovering more about yourself. It was any of this related to the initial propulsion of creating language transfer after seeing the impact that language has made on your life yeah for sure i mean it was that and also kind of the i want to say desencanto the disappointment i guess with like working in other ngos and and that kind of stuff no but yeah like uh, i'm i'm excited i'm excited about sharing anything generally that i'm excited about you know but um I wasn't thinking about doing it as a project, you know, actually. At the beginning, I had like, I was mm-hmm. kind of like very uh, disillusioned. That was the word. Disillusioned with like what I had witnessed in, in the NGOs. Um, not all of them, all the same. That was a really good one. But uh, just generally speaking, like that, that, that mini world. And uh, I, I decided to make, like, to commercialize the courses that I was like developing through the private classes that I was giving to like pay for all of this volunteer work. And then I'd sent it off to publishers and stuff like that. And I think like 10 months later, one called me. And then in that time, like so much had changed in, I discovered like a lot more about the monetary system, how it works. I discovered like practical things that allowed me to understand that my intuition or my feeling about the world was really right. And it was what started to send me back to how I saw things as a kid. Uh, after trying so hard to be like a normal adult like everybody wanted me to be and uh and then i just kind of like literally on the phone to the publisher literally it was like ah i think but i think i want this to be free i think it occurred to me in that moment because it was in that period i was like going to a call center to teach english and the girls were like proper uh i don't know in english in british english you say like chavy girls like kind of rough big earrings mm. and like really rough and like they scared me when they came in and they were really like and like after just a couple of classes I had them crying like so happy they couldn't believe they would they they would learn they were like coming excited running after you know they're working all day and then they do a class afterwards and you know of course right. they don't work you know and they had all that energy to do it and it was like the image of like these there was three girls it was just like the image of their faces and I was like, ah, this can be my activism. So at the beginning, it was th- thought about like, it was very tied to that experience, making people realize 
that they weren't stupid and that school is a bit stupid, you know? But then it, it just grew and grew and grew from my ideas about identity, from looking at languages and make like, and realizing, you know, that people's national identities are so far from anything sensical. But the language is showing you, you know, you're not some kind of like hom homogeneous uh, thing. You are a mix of this and that and whatever. That was a huge motivating factor for me. Everything language can teach you about life. Like sometimes I feel like the courses are an excuse for me to share like the stuff I've been talking about during this interview somehow, you know, because I use a lot of language to invite people to be bend their perception of the world to uh, challenge commonly held beliefs about language and culture and whatever but it's it's kind of woven in there and always used as a learning mechanism for something so i don't know the motivations were were various you know i mean i could i think i could list 10 principal motivations you know what about two can you list two off the top of your head well yeah like uh so like i said you know making people challenge their identity and their idea of what our cultures and languages and all of that the perception of reality, uh, the perception of their educational experience, you know, and the perception of their own intelligence and ability to learn. Um, making a project for free, saying, I don't want to compete with the world. I yeah. want to collaborate. One, because that's what we should be doing. It makes sense. That's kind of like what we were built for. Uh, mm. Two, I don't want to build something that its point is to make money move because then that becomes an artificial decision-making mechanism, as I discussed, and that would shape the courses. So I don't ask for your email address. I don't have any uh, uh, announce, uh, public publicity, not on the YouTube videos, not anywhere, you know, right. not on the website, nothing. So it's like, no, the only point here is about making the best courses in the world. Now, that's what you automatically think that anyone is trying to do, but no, that's the point. Most people are just trying to make money. Money. And they sit around the table and they go, how do we make something that sells? And that's that. And that's so artificial and it's insane. It's really crazy. It's so normalized, but it's insane. Like that's that's the discussions that you have. Like that's what we went to study for. That's why we went through years of academia, <laughs> sit around the table and think about that. And I realized that was uh, very soon with the... Uh, the publishers, because that publisher that had called me like months later had invited me for like an interview uh, months before and I could just sit around that table and go like, oh, <laughs> what? This is literally the only thing that, you know, like, oh, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that because that wouldn't sell. And I was like, yeah, but that works. That's what works. Yeah, wow. but it's packaging it, you know. Yeah, so there are like, you know, I think I gave you five reasons. There. Yeah, that that's incredible. And, you know, you're mentioning that individuals sometimes say that, oh, I'm trying to make the best course possible, but the money is a thing that's blocking their vision. And, you know, it's like that comes back to what we're talking about for the NGO and individuals who were kind of trapped in that paradigm where they knew they could have done more with the money or their time. But, you know, it's a powerful position. You're getting a decent compensation. You're feeling good. And you really took all your experiences in life and kind of just threw it into your course, which I just love. And, you know, it's, it, it connects, you know, like I was listening to your Spanish course and, you know, every, you, you really have a compassion to help and you really want individuals to learn and all these anecdotes that you relate from like the roots of certain words to Latin and how all that relates to life. I mean, it's, you really just connect people to themselves. 
Is that fair to say? Like you connect them to their true self without all that socialized pressure of what I should do in this society and at least well, one aspect it, of it. It helps. It gives you a little window of reset because, you know, uh, I don't, you know, I've always fallen in the habit of fant- like, uh, not fantasizing, what is the word? Um, kind of putting on a pedestal and f- fantasizing about like uh, other, the otherness as an escape, you know? And any, any culture is going to bring you the same ones that the one you're kind of leaving behind a bit. It just takes you through that process in a much more conscious way during which you have some windows in which you reset and then, and then get pulled back into kind of another indoctrination. Now, most people go through that process and talk about how crazy the Argentines are or how crazy the Egyptians are, or how crazy the Germans are. They don't use that to realize how crazy their culture is, which I find absurd. Like, I, I don't know if I taught myself to think like that or if I just, I find it, I've always found it absurd. Like in the same way that, you know, I grew up in like Ilford and the outskirts of London and there were like, 30 kids in my class and I think four to six were English and the rest were, you know, from all over the world and all different religions. And it's just like, well, how can any of us believe in, uh, in our God? So, you know, like my primary school was much more like Christian, but then the high school, it was like, and I was like, ah, it must all be bullshit. Right. <laughs> you know, And I didn't understand how that wasn't happening in other people's minds. And it was painful to me for me. Like I had a crisis about it because, you know, right. Uh, god and chatting to god at night was 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 a a big deal for me you know like i i used to pray when i was a kid and and felt an internal relationship which i realized was probably with myself uh Mm. you know so i don't know maybe i've got a chip missing that makes this kind of destroying constructs irresistible no matter how painful it is but i i definitely do recommend it all the same (laughs) For sure. For sure. And I guess uh, just cognizant on time, I think I'm going to go to the future motivations of where language transfer and you yourself are headed. And if there's any segue that you'd like to take there before closing remarks, feel free. But yeah, what's what's happening for the future of you language transfer? What's the future looking like, Mahalas? Tell me. Well, I mean, it's so exciting. Uh lockdown has just been brilliant for language transfer um i'm almost sad to say uh and i'm and i'm looking to hire people now like the patreon campaign uh you know like in argentina as a starting wage and then like if somebody is going to make a whole life out of language transfer hopefully it can go up 500 dollars a month is, is a decent wage especially for a young person like me 10 years ago uh, full of energy and running something that really wants their heart and soul and it's a, it's a perfect job so i can hire two people at the moment i'm just trying to find them that's amazing i mean that's just the most exciting thing so one person for like dissemination and admin and that kind of stuff i can't keep up with the emails anymore like it's incredible um and the, right a new on. teacher will be to finish the german course to write mandarin or japanese one of those three things i'm giving the three options because i need to find the right person so three options uh from the voting campaign it makes it easier uh to to find somebody that's really exciting uh in the last few days i got like more than one and a half thousand dollars in 
in uh, occasional donations, which it, nice. that's not normal. It just like three huge donations like popped up, um, or one especially huge one. And uh, you know, so the support is just like I, I, I'd never really imagined happening. Another, I'm in Argentina, and you know, like I can afford to hire people. It's just like, yes, go, go, go! Like this is this is this is the time now. Like this is this is everything I wanted. So yeah, amazing, like amazing. My my idea is now to become like director of language transfer and be training new teachers that you know I co-write the courses with, and that I like very like you know I direct them and give them some material and ideas and whatever. They use me and other people as test students. And and we record courses like that. So that's that's the plan of uh, where we go in. Um, also, I want people for um, visual material for the new languages and the existing languages to continue creating visual material. And then there's this whole other arm that I'm working on, which is the thinking method generally. So the method applied to things that aren't language. So it's really important for the world to take advantage of the ideas behind this method to understand that it's not just about language. It's not language specific, it can be applied to anything. So I'm working on introduction to music theory, which is mad earth, because explain music, like go on. <laughs> you know, it's really, really complicated and weaves together, like from the, the side of physics, how music works to the theory yeah. side, which is scales and chords and all of that. It's, in, it's the same, it's all interlinked in a way that gives me so many opportunities to write an amazing course and so many opportunities to mess it up. But that, that's always the case. <laughs> that's always that's part of the that's part of the process. So I'm working on that in the in the moments I can between like admin, you know, because uh, things are going things are going crazy. I haven't checked the usership figures for a while, but it's mental. I check, I, I, you know, like because I just have so much to do. Like I only saw the reviews on Google Play the other day because. I, I, I want an app update to fix the bugs and whatever. So I had to open it for something. And I was like, what? There's like 800 reviews, mostly great majority, like wordy, five-star, uh, really beautiful feedback. So it's just, I can't, I can only say it's the, the golden moment at the moment. I just hope to find the right people ASAP and say, this is the team, there is a team, <laughs> you know? So yeah, yeah it's, all, it's, all, it's all going brilliant. That's and fantastic. The, the more I kind of let go and, you know, channel genuinely, uh, which I always thought I was doing, and I guess that's part of the process of life because the more layers you tear away, you realize, you know, the more you can do it. The more I do that, the, the, the better stuff goes. That's huge. I'm I'm really thrilled to hear this, Mahalis. I'm yeah, I'm just so happy for you. You know, this is a project that you started pretty much not knowing the future. And to see your convictions about life come into your project and you know, just the impact. Making a free course, it's amazing. It's it's I'm just really thrilled. I have one question before we go to closing remarks. And since we were talking about money and your I guess fight with money as well would you ever be considering cryptocurrency donations to language transfer on the yeah. donations page since it's I'm just laughing. a big project now i'm laughing because four years ago i got a 25 dollar bitcoin donation is that you know right now? 
four years ago? I don't know, probably like four thousand. Four or five years ago. Uh, well, no, it's it's a thousand one hundred two hundred, but still, like that's a, it was twenty five dollars, like that's crazy. Um, so thank you for reminding me. On the old website, I had a a Bitcoin link, and I don't yeah. on this one. <laughs> I think that was something that got just like lost in making the new website. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, the hype around it. We had uh, my friend Dan on that's who we actually did the longer episode with for three, four hours. And uh, yeah, you know, he was a very big fan of crypto and Bitcoin specifically. So just an idea because I thought it might fit with it. And yeah. So do you get a sponsorship for asking me that? Do I get a sponsorship? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm just uh, interested because, you know, crypto is kind of like no governments, no one's... Uh, really you know monitor well, you know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't buy any of it because i don't think i can play with the language transfer money like that right but i'm very mm. happy that i withdrew mostly because i can work out how to do it the 25 dollars that was donated yeah because yeah. now you know it's sitting there and it's brilliant and i'm just like, i'm leaving that there for emergency for sure for sure that's fantastic and uh Mahalis, i guess we'll wrap it up to a close my friend so what, what i'll do is i'll ask you if you have uh, where people can find you, any shout outs. And then after we'll go into your closing remarks, you can do it together or we can finish one at a time, whatever you'd like. Um, so yeah, languagetransfer.org is the website. And now uh, we have an app that came out in May. Uh, done by volunteers, which is awesome. And it's got some problems for some devices. So I'm sorry if that happens, but you can just uh, search in the app store like Language Transfer or in Google Play. Um, Facebook is where most stuff is uh, shared. Instagram is very asleep. Twitter is a little asleep. I need like I need someone to deal with that kind of stuff. At least you won't get overwhelmed by my posts. Um, there's something I almost forgot. Ah, Patreon. I always forget that. So if you want to like help this project, help me hire a team, help me branch it out into thinking method and other areas, music, physics, science. If you want me to like build a big like wizardry school in, uh, maybe not wizardry school, but that kind of thing. I like that kind of vibe. Anyway, <laughs> if you want Love me it. to like build, buy big old buildings and create educational institutions, like I've got all the energy for it. Um, if you guys want to see, if you want to see that grow, you can donate with $1 a month. Uh, the monthly donations are what changed everything behind language transfer because then you can project and do things like hire people, you know, because it's more or less stable uh, what's coming in. So that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash language transferred. Uh, if you'd like to support or you can uh, donate, make occasional donations on the website as well. And also, like, one of the most important things is sharing the experience you have with the courses because um, until, you know, I hire this person there's, uh, or, or some freelancers, which I'm supposed to be doing as well, um, the only way language transfer gets disseminated is through word of mouth. And uh, people are obviously doing that. They tell me about it all the time, but they're obviously doing that because the, the usership is, is huge at the moment. So please, please keep doing that. That's everything, right? yeah that's awesome and yeah i'm really bad at like the publicity base <laughs> no 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 for sure so definitely make sure and we'll throw a link down for his patreon page so you can support him with whatever you're able to 
Um, and yeah, you know, definitely share it with your friends. I've shared it with a lot of my friends just because, you know, I, I grew up in Canada. We learned French. I went through several years of French education. And honestly, like you you can't beat you can't beat language transfer. The amount of like, you know, like when you do a math problem and then it's just you don't understand it and then out of nowhere you just clicks. That's what you get with language transfer, except it happens like every couple of minutes. It's boom, boom, boom. <laughs> You just get so much value from it. And I think with that, sir, what is your one message to the audience today? It can be regarding the topics we discussed, something that we didn't get to. Take it away in whatever direction you'd like. I guess we were very serious. And one of the things I, I definitely should mention is that arguing with yourself will make you happier. It will. It will resolve a lot. And it will just allow you forevermore to live with less shame and more acceptance and more peace, you know, because it's a process of resolving internal conflicts, not creating them, because whether you recognize them, them or not, the, the internal conflict is there. The contradiction you have to ignore is requiring your brain to ignore it. So I have to say, I'm like much happier now uh, than I was 10 years ago, even though that maybe somebody that met me 10 years ago seemed me much more like bouncy and uh, uh, hyperactive and, uh, you know, and all over the place. I I'd say I'm in a, I'd say I'm in a better shape now. And that's, that's definitely a process of some really difficult uh, journeys and, and fights. And, you know, if you want to be happier, put the boxing gloves on. <laughs> Boom. Uppercut yourself. I, I, I love it, Mahalas. And I 100% agree. I've uh, been on a similar journey with regards to fighting with myself, and I'm still on that. And I 100% agree. There's some tough calls you got to make on yourself, but you do become happier. And I think the world would be a better place with this message spread to many. So be sure to share it with your friends. And with that said, Mahalas, thank you very much for coming onto our show and sharing the amounts of knowledge, wisdom. And, you know, I got a lot from it. I know for certain and all the viewers and listeners will pick up lots of nuggets of gold for this. And I wish you the best with language transfer. And I hope to have you on once you spread through the educational system. And that's my hope. That's my hope for your journey, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much uh, for, for having me on and for doing this. And all the best. We'll chat. Awesome. And to the viewers and listeners of this episode, thank you again for watching, listening. Be sure to share it with your friends, and we'll see you on the next one. Hey, everyone. Par, I'm back after another amazing episode with another amazing guest. We hope we added value into your life so you could take the tips from this episode and fuel your process forward. If you enjoyed our episode today and think other friends or family members may also appreciate the lessons that our podcast brings, be sure to share us with them. Subscribe and rate our show so we know how we did. And always remember, trust the process.